Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. Go ahead and subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a rating or review. It makes a big difference. It helps other people know about the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, on to the show. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's my first time doing something like this, so it's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's 5 p.m. where I am. It's 9 a.m. where you are. And this is pretty cool. So I was just saying before the mic's heated up, this is the first time I've done a podcast where I almost feel like I did a podcast episode with you already. So you you told me your story. We, we met up on Zoom and uh, and it was amazing. And I said, we got to do this again, but I'm going to record it next time. So So I appreciate you doing this. Let's start at a high level. My bullet points on you, family business in the footwear industry, your second generation, and you have a hell of a story about how you got here. So why don't we just start off high level with what the company is today, and then we'll rewind and, and bring people forwards. Yeah, no problem at all. So our company is Munro Footwear Group, which is our holding company. It consists of 270-odd retail stores in Australia. We have a wholesale distribution business, and we also have our online direct-to-consumer websites. So we're Australia's largest privately held footwear company. It's still family owned and family run. And yeah, started, my dad started in shoes 70 years ago and my mom's been in the game for over 40 years as well. So they've been in it a long time. Amazing. And you told me your revenues last time. I don't want to say them though. Can you disclose revenues? Yeah, no problem. So our projected revenue for this financial year, which ends on June 30 is 330 million. So that's the goal for this year. And, and our our goal within the next two years is going to be 400 million. Wow. Okay. So this is a mega company. So let's go back. 70 years ago, your dad starts the company. What's, what's your dad's background? Was he in the footwear game? Was he like just an entrepreneur who started from nothing? Yeah. So my dad started in working for another company called Maya, which is Australia's largest department store chain. So he started in shoes in Maya 70 years ago. He started manufacturing about 50 odd years ago. So he was a manufacturer here in Australia. That's where he met my mum, who was started working with him about 45-ish years ago. So I don't want to quote the wrong number. She might kill me if I do, but it's over 40 years ago, that's for sure. So they started in manufacturing. And they're manufacturing. And then what was the transition from doing that to actually like, let's start a footwear company? Yeah, so they were manufacturers and they had their own brand called Gammons back all those years ago. So the, my mum and dad were manufacturers for a very long time and, and manufacturing in the 60s, 70s and early 80s was really prevalent in Australia, much like other parts of the world. And, and they were a really strong player. They had factories across both Sydney and Melbourne. We're based in Melbourne, Victoria. And they were a strong player back in the manufacturing days. In the late 80s, early 90s, manufacturing in Australia went really sour. Essentially, it was a protected industry whereby there was really high tariffs and quota, so you couldn't import a lot of shoes from overseas into the Australian market. Those tariffs and those quotas got lifted by a government that was in power at the time and essentially obliterated the entire industry because imported products become significantly cheaper, much like the rest of the world. And what happened with our business then was my dad actually held on for too long and we actually ended up losing everything and we went bankrupt and we had to start again. 
So in the what late, was that in? it was in the mid to late 90s. So my mum recognised that the factory business was, it was no good and it, there was no future in it because imports were always going to be cheaper and better and end customer wasn't going to pay for Australian-made products. So she recognised that pretty early and, and started being an agent for brands. So she was selling everything from shoes to belts to hats to accessories to handbags, whatever she could get her hands on, basically to put food on the table because the factory was was doing poorly. So she was doing that as an agent. And then what happened with her business was she had two sales girls. And what happened with her business was that she would build brands up for companies and she was selling across three states. And then the principals of those brands would say, we're paying you too much money in commission. We're going to do this ourselves. So it was in the very late 90s that this process happened to her with her biggest footwear brand at the time. And two weeks out from our selling season, the, the principal of the company said, sorry, Kerry, you're, I'm not going to send you the samples. And that was, I think, something like 50% of her revenue at the time. And she wasn't going to get anything for it. So she said at that point that we now need to be masters of our own destiny. And and she decided to to go to China with my dad and, and start importing shoes and building brands herself. So we always had our retail stores through that period. We always had four or five retail stores, but they were always sort of cash flowing businesses as opposed to profit generators. And basically turning manufacturing product into cash was was always the goal for those stores at the time. Okay. So that so was sort of late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to get a snapshot here. So in the late 90s, you've got five stores and your mom and dad are running a manufacturing business, effectively a, a white label manufacturer where they're manufacturing other people's brands. Is that right? We were doing other people's brands as well as our own brands. But yeah, it was very small. And, and essentially, we were broke. We were living out of our... We had a beach shack in a little place called Cannons Creek that had two bedrooms. We had two-minute showers and it was about an hour and 15 minutes from from Melbourne. So we had to get up at 5.30 in the morning, have a two-minute shower each and get up and go to school in Melbourne. So yeah, it was it was a really, really tough time for, for That's insane. So you, you're, you've got a manufacturing facility and five stores and you guys are basically living on the poverty line. I don't know if you know this, but what kind of revenues, not profit, what kind of revenues did you have at that point? It was tiny. It was, it was tiny. It would have been... Less than $2 million. Okay. Maybe, maybe a million dollars, I think. Right. So a million dollars and the profit would have been maybe probably nothing, like just enough it, to feed yourselves. It was basically negative. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. So your mom has this idea, and I don't know who to credit, but your mom slash dad have this idea to... They got to make a change. And we're in the late 90s here. So pick up from there. Yeah. So definitely the credit for this iteration of the business needs to be to to my mum, uh, without a shadow of doubt. So she she recognised that that we needed to go to China and start our own brand so that we were in control of our own destiny. And so dad had already started going to China and he said, look, Kerry, I, I think we can find some places. So they, they went to China together and they found some product and they found some manufacturers that were willing to start small. And, and we're still working with those same manufacturers today. Over twenty, nearly twenty-five years later, we're still working with the same people. So, did you get out of, of the of the white label business entirely at that point, or did you just minimize it? No, we ended up closing the factories altogether. Right. So we, we only were importing at that point, and we had just a few stores at the time. So, fast forward the first couple of years, and Mum found some some product that that people liked and people wanted, and we started really focusing 
on our roots, which was our wholesale business. So from the manufacturing days, it's essentially the same as being a wholesaler. So we really focused on our on our wholesale business and, and we started to get a little bit of traction. Whenever there was containers, we would have to take the days off school and go and do the containers and things started to roll a little bit in the early 2000s. So you've, we're at 2001 and my middle brother, Lee, Lee finishes school and he basically says to mum, what you're doing is just crazy. Late at night, you're trying to do the book work and you're trying to transfer stock between the stores. And then during the day, you're trying to sell and it's just, it's just not going to work. How about I give up uni for six months and I'll come and get you computerized? So he did that and he came in and ran the retail stores for mum. So he basically looked after the retail stores for her. And, and yeah, he, he started to, to work in the business and he never made it back to uni. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you had retail stores at that time but you were primarily focusing on the wholesale business, getting your shoes into other people's stores. Correct. So our brands, but into other people's stores. So essentially through independent retail. So we are now still the largest stock of footwear through independence in Australia. Our biggest brand through independence is a brand that mum started 21 years ago, which had our 21st birthday called Django and Juliet. And that's where we started. So it was basically leather premium products selling to better end footwear retailers. So yeah, you're fast. Django forward. and Juliet. Yeah, Django. So Django, D J A N G O. Oh, yeah. And Juliet. Yep. Got so hit. yeah, we started basically really focusing and pushing our, our wholesale business while Lee, my middle brother, was optimizing our retail business and we started to open some stores. So fast forward to 2003, which is when I finished school and I was going to go to uni, but I went for the first week and I said, this is not for me. So I said, oh, look, I'll do six months, but I want to work full time. And so I joined the business in 2003. I had a conversation with Lee and said, how do you want to do this? He said, well, why don't I do retail, you do wholesale? And that's how we split it up. So I worked in wholesale really closely with mum and our sales team, Robbie, who's my mum's sister, who's still with us today. And we had another sales girl called Susie. And yeah, I worked in the wholesale business from, from basically the moment I joined, which was 2003. So let me let me ask you a question. I, I want to dig into that in a second. But when you're starting out a footwear business, like you're saying your mom went to China, she found manufacturers, and then she was going to put her brand, Django and Juliet, for example, and, and others on their shoes. So when you do that, I'm sure today you guys have designers and you have all kinds of experts. But when you do that, is your mom basically going into a factory saying, Hey, I like that shoe. I'm going to put my name on it. And then I'm going to go sell it. Is that is it as simple as that? That's basically how it started. So yeah, we went to showrooms of factories and trading companies in China and, and basically she saw some product that she liked and then she had to modify it to make it suitable to the Australian market. So for example, in those days in China, everything had jewels and bling on it, everything. So she had to basically get declutter the shoes and make them more to our market. And that's essentially how we started. Now it's completely different. We design everything from scratch and there's we basically buy nothing off the shelf anymore. But um, back then it was yeah, picking off the shelf and, and basically modifying it to the Australian market. So you start in 2003. So you never went to university, right? No, I did six months. I did six oh, okay. months. But I uh, no, it wasn't for me. I didn't like the fact that nobody cared whether you were there or not. It just, <laughs> it just, it just wasn't yeah. my, uh, it just wasn't my DSA. But at that stage, the business has started to get pretty good momentum and we were doubling in size every year. So there was plenty to do and we, we had no space and no people. So we essentially just did everything. So we did everything so when, from 
when, you go. when your brother Lee came in and took over the books for your mom, that was like early 2000s. And then you got into the obviously the branded footwear business and out of the manufacturing business. So you, you did a couple things there. At what point was it that you actually started to make a profit? Was it was it basically at that point that you started to say, "Oh, we actually have some cash here at the end of the year"? Yeah. So we it was early two thousands that we started to be profitable. So basically, from the day that we started importing, we started to make a little bit of profit. It wasn't a lot because it was very small, but we started to be profitable because the wholesale business is is a good business and that it's low risk because essentially you're buying what you sell and there's profit in that as long as you keep your costs under control. It can be good. And, and back in those days, the product was very, very affordable out of China. And mm-hmm. the retail prices in Australia were, were still pretty high for footwear back then. So there was, there was good margin in it. From a very early on in the business, my mom always said, we need to reinvest, reinvest, reinvest. So every dollar of profit that we ever made, we reinvested back in the business. And still to this day, we, we basically have that same mantra. And you're, you're reinvesting in, in what? Like buying better shoes or buying more shoes or doing sales marketing? What are you doing? Product. Our business has always been product-led. So our reinvestment was always back in more shoes and more shoes and more shoes. And so we, we really revolutionized the wholesale business in Australia. Back when we first started, there was three or four key brands that were just dominant in the market. And we entered and, and those brands had a real stranglehold. We found a really beautiful niche, which was premium footwear for 30 plus women that wasn't daggy. So we were, we were stylish, we were comfortable, and we were everyday wear that you could wear from day to night. We still have that mantra today. So we really found a beautiful niche and we attacked it hard. And then we reinvested in stock to support our, both our retail stores and our retail partners. And it really grew from there. So every, every dollar that we had extra, we put it back into more shoes to try and make more profits to then buy more shoes to keep rolling. So getting smarter with your finances was one, getting into the, the wholesale business, not out of the manufacturing business. And then the third thing you mentioned was the, the ICP or the ideal customer profile, targeting that 30 plus woman with the ideal product. Is there anything else that you can attribute your wild success to in, in those early days? Hard work. <laughs> a lot yeah. of hustle. <laughs> you just hustle. Just hustle. Like I, I remember when I was a young kid, I was 18, I'd just finished school and so I partied, right? So we'd, we'd, we'd party, we'd go out on Thursday nights and we'd get home at three o'clock in the morning, but it didn't matter because we had containers at seven. So you had to be there. So we had containers arrived at seven. We would receive the containers in, work all day invoicing to get the shoes out. And then we would wait until the trucks came at night. And we insisted that we had the latest pickup available. So we used to have a driver called Kerry who used to come at 7.30 PM every night and pick our stuff up. So we used to work 12 hour days and that wasn't just me. That was the, the whole family and everybody that worked for us. So hard work. Wow. Wow. Okay. So now you're in 2003. So you came on board and you said that, I mean, you're, you're the chief product officer. So what was the job description when you started and, and how has that evolved over the years? There was no job description in a family business. <laughs> it was just to do what you need to do to get it done. Do whatever shit you got to do to get this thing done. <laughs> Correct. So when I first started, it was, it was basically just working in our wholesale business. So everything from customer service to sales to ordering the product from the factories to warehousing to basically anything to do with distribution of the product. I was also helping Lee with the retail stores and getting stock out to the stores then. So I did that for like the first maybe... 
15 years of my journey, I really focused on the wholesale side of the business for us and, and really learned the product side by doing as opposed to being taught. And it's only been in the last sort of six or seven years that I've been involved in product and only in the last five years that I've got my new role, which is looking after product for the whole group. Was your growth over the years from 2003 until now, 20 years later, was it very much like even Steven kind of just compounding every year, doubling every year? Or were there moments in there where you sort of surged in growth as well? So our business has been on a really interesting journey in terms of growth. So for the first, I guess, 10 years of, of after me joining, we were really focused on wholesale. We did build our retail portfolio to about 11 stores and they were trading really well. But we kind of came to a fork in the road where we sat down as a family. By this stage, my eldest brother, who's now our CEO, had joined. When he left school, there was no, there was no job for him. So he left school and went off and drove ships. So he was a ship's captain. Wow. So he he joined the business. It's about 15 years ago now. And he came in and looked after logistics and warehousing when he joined. But about, I guess, 10 years into the journey, we sort of sat down as a family and said, look, the wholesale business is starting to get tougher. We're not going to have the same level of growth that we've had. We need to really work out the next steps for us. And we kind of had three... I guess, opportunities for growth from there. One was we could expand more in wholesale and do more private label, more white label product. We didn't like that idea because it was low margin, high risk, and we didn't want to build other people's brands. So we said that wasn't a good option for us. The second option was we could go international with our brands and our product. We simply didn't think we were ready for that. And we didn't think that our marketing and we probably still don't think our marketing strong enough to do a really good job in the international space. So we said, no, we don't think that's right for us. The third option for us was retail growth and retail expansion. And that was the path that we took. And we started to expand our retail portfolio significantly from, from that point. And we did that primarily through acquisition. And how did you... Who in the family or who outside the family has expertise in M&A or, or nobody? It's a great question. Nobody has trained experience, but unquestionably, my eldest brother, Jay, was the visionary for the family and the business in terms of growth and, and acquisitions. So he really pushed us to see beyond the small, relatively small business that we were running at the time and, and really, I guess, look to the horizon as to what could this business be if we really push it. And my dad has, was really instrumental in, in pushing us to continue to grow. And we saw an opportunity that, you know, we had five family members that were, that were in it, that were vested and, and that were really capable. So we knew we, we were capable of doing more and we knew we could continue to grow and scale. So that's what we did. So we essentially started with acquisitions at that point and we've done multiple acquisitions since then. What year was the first acquisition? I'm just trying to reflect back on that. I think it was about 2013, 2012, that, around, okay. that, around about 10 years ago that we, that we started the acquisition trail. So we started, our first acquisition was a brand called Midas. So that was a, a really well-established and really well-known brand in high-end fashion in the Australian market. It was owned by the Figgins Holding Group. So we, we acquired that and it took our retail footprint from sort of 11 stores up to 40 stores overnight. As part of that acquisition was another brand of ours called Malini, which is now primarily an online and wholesale brand for us. And then we've done further acquisitions since then. If you, you fast forward 
three or so years, we did another significant acquisition for us, which was a brand called Style Tread, which was uh, essentially the Zappos of Australia. So it was, it entered the market with a real big splash and grew really rapidly. They went from sort of zero revenue to 25 million in revenue within 18 months, but they lost around about $25 million in that time. So when we entered that process, which was really late in it, we said, if we strip back all of the, I guess, craziness that was going on within the business, can we make this a good long-term, sustainable, profitable business for us? And we knew online was going to be massive. It wasn't, in shoes in Australia at that time, it wasn't big. It was still quite small, but we thought looking to the future, looking at Amazon, looking at Zappos, looking at what's happening with .com internationally, we knew that shoes had to be massive in Australia. So we we made that acquisition. So it essentially went from, I think, online sales for us at the time were around about 2% of sales and it took us up to 20% of sales. And But we knew that it was the right call for us long term. So then we did two more acquisitions, one called Mountfords and one called Wanted in Sydney. And then at that point, we had a really nice business that was turning over let's say about $100 million in sales. And that was uh, five, five years ago. Have you... So that, that was roughly what, like seven acquisitions you made in that period? Roughly, yeah. So around about seven. Yeah. Quick break here while I tell you about something really exciting I've been working on called the Business Essentials Kit. Here's the deal. I get asked all the time, John, how do you run your business effectively? What's the best way to build a website? How do I get a branded email? How do I save on legal fees? How do I manage my social media? So what I've done is I've put a kit together for you for free. You can download it at johndavids.com with all the tools and services that I use to run my business. Get it right now for free at johndavids.com. So you landed at 100 million and then now you're going to be between 3 and 400 million. Is that just organic growth at that point? No, so or- we did our, our our biggest acquisition was 5 years ago. Okay. So at the, at the time, we were turning over, said about $100 million, And we got approached by a company called Fusion Retail Brands. As part of that portfolio is Mathers, Williams, Dyna, Ferrari in Colorado. It's a very well-known footwear company in Australia. It's gone through a really interesting and checkered past. It had phenomenal success early on through Williams, which has been around for well over 100 years. And Mathers has its 100th year birthday this year. Both were really successful chains within their own right. Both of the original family founders sold out. And since those times, the business has had a really checkered and difficult time. It got owned by private equity for a while, which lost a lot of money. It went public for a while, which lost a lot of money. And it got acquired out of, I think, receivership around about seven years ago. And we made that acquisition about five years ago. So we got approached and said we'd be interested in in acquiring. And so at that time, they were 200 million for round number's sake. We were 100 million. So it was essentially would triple the size of our business. But we looked at it and said, yeah, we think the business has got great potential because it had it was losing significant amount of money. And the people that were in the business running it had got it to a point where it wasn't losing significant amount of money. So I think two years prior to us acquiring, I think they lost something like 27 million. By the time that we acquired, they were on the path to profitability. They weren't there yet, but we knew that we could really help primarily through our product and our brands. So, so you, 
you guys, what, what was the name of that company? You said it's like the Zappos for Australia? Style Tread. Style Tread. Okay. Yeah. So Style Tread, and I want to come back to Fusion in a second, but you made it sound like Style Tread was a venture-backed... I imagine it was a venture-backed company. Like They had raised VC, burned through that venture capital, and were going to die. And then you guys swooped in and picked them up, right? Basically, yeah. That's exactly how it happened. So they... They were on a, a really strong growth trajectory and they ran out of runway. The, the backers that they had, they thought had, were going to support them and they, they said, no, they're not putting any more money in. And they were, they were running out of cash and they, they were essentially going to go bankrupt. And we entered the process, yeah, really, really late. We were their largest supplier. So we knew our product was going to sell on the site. But yeah, it was, it was, and it was rushed. It was, we did it really quickly, much quicker yeah. than we would normally do deals. But it was a distressed sale, for lack of a better word. And in the case of Fusion, obviously not venture back because they've been around since 1864. But they were similar in the sense that they were not doing very well. And you came in as, as sort of the white knight. Is that right? Yes and no. I think the a guy that still works for us now, Phil Scala, was instrumental in turning the business around for the two years or the three years prior to us getting involved in it. So it was absolutely buggered. And they, Phil and his team had done a great job at, at turning it around to the point where it wasn't profitable. It was still a little way off being profitable, but we knew we could get it to profitability just through adding our product and our expertise. So yeah, we essentially took over that business and, and yeah, have, have really ramped it up. And it's now a great performer for us to the point where Williams is right now. It's, it's our fastest growing chain and we're opening lots of stores and we're we're going to have 140 stores just of that chain alone by the end of this calendar year. And it's, yeah, it's really flying. So you guys, it sounds to me like in all these cases, you have to be really good at, I guess, better product, better cost structure, maybe figuring out what to close, what to keep open. But you, you have to be good at a few things to do all this M&A and not die of indigestion, which some companies... you know, It's like you go and you, you buy all these things and then you basically just you burn out because you can't digest them. Are you really good at those things? Or is there, is there some other secret sauce here that makes you a good buyer? Yeah. So M&A can be really fatal for companies because... The hardest part is, depending on the structure and how you're going to run it, the hardest part is the culture and making sure that if you're trying to merge businesses or you're trying to acquire, you've got to make sure that the, your cultures are aligned and, and that the people that are coming into your group are going to fit and are, and are going to work. So culture is absolutely key, but there's a whole lot of stuff that you've got to do and you've got to do a lot of stuff well for it to be executed well. What we found with the latest acquisition was when you go from a $100 million business, it's relatively small and you can be across most details. When you get to $300 million, that's not the case. You, you have to put the right structure, put the right management team. You've got to trust the people and you've got to let them do their work. Whereas at $100 million with you know, four family members, my dad's retired, we could be across pretty much all the detail. Whereas at 300 you just simply can't. So that's been the biggest, I guess, learning for us. The, the other acquisitions were relatively small because they could be folded in to what we were already doing. Whereas this one was much more difficult because it was a beast. You know, it was a real beast. So we had to get our head around structure, get our head around cultural alliance, get our head around process, governance, all that stuff, which as a family, you know, we're not good at any of that stuff. And so that's been a real learning, a learning curve for us. And 
we're just really fortunate that we've got an incredible team that that we lean on that essentially now runs the business for us. And I love what you said there, which is really frame-breaking for a lot of people listening to this. The idea that a $100 million business is still relatively small, and then you went to 300. I'm sure back in the early 2000s, when you were just getting past 2 or 3 million, 100 million would have sounded like the greatest thing ever. And of course, your expectations change as you grow. So people listening should understand, you can always reset your expectations as you get bigger and bigger. There's always... you know, I'm sure today you're thinking about what does it look like at a billion? What does it look like at 5 billion? That, that's where your mind goes, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a very good point. And we, you know, even now, everybody's, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you're, you know, you're running a business and there's, we're still relatively small. <laughs> <You know? laughs> when you look at the global footwear market, you're still small. We're, we're still tiny. You know, we talked to the guys from Nordstrom. 14 billion in sales. We talked to the guys from Steve Madden, you know, many billion in sales. We talked to the guys from Dykeman Europe, 7 billion euros in sales. Like we're, for, in comparison, we're tiny. Right. And then the other thing I was curious about was so you, you as a company, as you mentioned, you're, you were family, you are family owned, but you bought all these businesses and you guys have essentially, I don't know what the investment structure has been, but how did you, at a high level, how did you pay for these things? Are these mostly financed by debt? Are these mostly vendor take back where you're paying these off over the course of many years? What's the general structure to do all these acquisitions? So every acquisition we've done up until the last big one has been funded through profits. So we've always been, as I said before, we've always been reinvesting back in the business. I guess the deal that we've done has been funded through existing cash and profits within the business. We've never had debt. My mum's scared of debt. So we've never had really any debt in the business at all. So that, that was up until the fusion acquisition. And once when we did that acquisition, the previous owner of fusion actually got a percentage of the group. So they, we now have one external shareholder who who owns 20% of the group. So our family owns 80% and then we've got one external shareholder who owns 20%. So you guys were buying all these companies through from 2013 to 2020 or so. You were buying them all with just profits. You weren't getting a whole bunch of bank debt to finance it. No. No, it was all through wow. profits. Wow. That is you guys have to be really really good at managing your cash because in a capital intensive business like selling, you know, footwear at retail or at wholesale there's a lot of opportunity to just burn through every last dollar, but you are obviously very good at making sure that you keep your costs under control. Yeah, it's we've always been really vigilant operating the business to the the best level that it can in terms of cash flow management, return on capital invested, you know, profitability, you know, all that stuff. So we've always been really uh, focused on that, and we've always made sure that we've got enough cash in case you know a pandemic hits. <laughs> for a rainy day. Yeah. <laughs> that was my next question. And I mean, maybe it's the pandemic or maybe it's something else. But from the time of the new incarnation of the company, so 2003 onwards, the last 20 years, have there been near death experiences or really tight times where you thought, oh my God, we, we might lose it all? The only time was through COVID. Throughout the last 20 years, that no, without, without a question, that, that has, was by far the scariest thing that any of us have ever experienced over the last 20 years. I still remember it vividly. We it was three years ago, and COVID was starting to take hold, and our retail stores were trading at minus eighty percent. 
Wow. So we we had a real we had a real problem. We were projecting what our cash flow looked like at that stage. There was no government support in play, and I still remember it vividly. We we made the very difficult decision as a board that we we needed to make drastic change. So on one day, um, you know, at the start of the pandemic, which was March 2020, 20, I can't believe it was three years ago. We essentially made 50 roles in our head office out of 200 redundant. And we made, we asked the rest of the team to go to three days a week. And that was extremely difficult to have to do that and have that impact on so many people because we genuinely, genuinely care for our people. But we were in full survival mode. At that stage, we didn't know what the government support, if any, was going to look like. We didn't know whether our stores were going to be able to remain open, How what that was going to look like. Yeah, so that what was, was really count at that point? We had about 2,500. Wow. We had about wow. 2,500. And yeah, it was, it was just petrifying. So there's, that was, without a question, the, the only, I guess, near-death experience that we've had, and, and it, was, it was really scary. It was, I think, maybe a week or so later, we had to close all of our stores and we had the full national lockdown. And then, you know, soon after or soon before that, we, um, the government announced some support for business and, and for the people. And once we had the government support, it was, you know, extremely challenging and trying, I think, not only for us, but for everybody. And we still were in survival mode. We felt like we were in survival mode for a very long time because where we're based in Melbourne, we are the most locked down city in the world. And we had, you know, so much, we got out of lockdown and then we'd go back into lockdown and we go out of lockdown. I think we had seven, six or seven lockdowns. It was incredibly challenging period, but we kind of knew that even though, so fast forward 12 months into the pandemic and the fear of not surviving had sort of subsided. And every time we did get open, we traded really well. So we kind of said, okay, we've just got to find the headspace to get through this because we knew that if and when we do reopen, we knew it was going to reopen, we couldn't be locked down for forever, that trade was going to be good. And when where we had cities and states that were not in lockdown, they were trading extremely well. So it was just a matter of patience and perseverance and and getting through some really difficult times. What was the like the cadence of you you shut so March 2020 you shut down how long were you at minus 80% i mean almost no revenue no profit how long did that last oh, it, was, it, it felt like for forever <laughs> <laughs> i don't know it's kind of so we had online which was good so we we were fortunate that we've invested heavily in online so our online sales for the next financial year are, are expected to be about 100 million so we had online that was strong and, and was growing rapidly on the back of all the lockdowns. So that helped. You're saying online, an e-commerce business. Yeah, e sorry, e-commerce yeah. business. Yeah, so our e-commerce across all of our websites will be, we, we're projected to do around about 100 million next financial year, which starts on July 1. So we, we had online, which was going well. Our e-commerce was going well. But we had Victoria in lockdown, which is where we're based, and New South Wales in, in lockdown for a long period as well. So... Yeah, it was it was just really challenging because we had massive revenue drops. Our profitability was absolutely obliterated. It was it was really challenging, not only for us but for everybody. And then when you started to come out of it, what was that like? Was it just like you you opened your doors and all of a sudden sales went through the roof? Yeah, so wherever we opened, we were trading well. But the challenge was the uncertainty of future lockdowns, and that's what we experienced particularly in Melbourne. Where we we would we'd open for two months and trade to be fantastic, and then we'd be back in lockdown. 
and then you'd go from going really well to nothing to and we, we were fortunate in that we had national coverage so we where we had certain states locked down other states were open and were trading well so that gave us the confidence that that when we did reopen and fully reopen trade would be robust and would be good and it's played out that it has been so through covid we once we kind of got through the first 12 months which was extremely uncertain we kind of said as a board that we now need to i guess transform the business and get it ready for what does post-COVID look like. And we've been working on a really incredibly good and really fantastic transformation agenda for the business. And, and we're partway through that. We just worked, moved into our automated warehouse. So we've got the AMR technology, which is the same as what Amazon uses. So we've, we've done that. We've rolled out new business intelligence software. We're in the process now of rolling out new point of sale, which will be fully handheld devices, as well as a new auto management system, which will allow full endless aisle and full online visibility of all of our stock, as well as we're looking at some other, I guess, smaller, smaller projects as well. So we've really transformed the business over the last three years, and we are right now a significantly stronger business than what we were at the start of COVID, which is I'm really proud of, and, and the team's done an incredible job. I've heard that that same refrain from so many CEOs, myself included, where you just look at your business in 2020 and look at where you are in 2023. And it's amazing. It's amazing how much progress we've all made ensuring that we can survive basically in a completely digital virtual world. And you get rid of a whole bunch of redundancies and you get rid of old ways of doing things. And you say, why the heck were we ever doing that? Like, can't believe we, we used to do it like this. So I, I've heard that consistently, and it sounds like like you had the same experience. Yeah, we, without a doubt. And even now, we we reflect on some of the stuff that we were doing pre-COVID, and we're like, oh, why were we doing it that way? <laughs> yeah. So where does this thing go? I have a few questions left. I want to get to the personal side in a second, but where does this thing go over the next like three, five, ten years? Like, a, do you just keep getting bigger and bigger? At some point, do you keep buying bigger companies? At some point, do you sell? Do you go public? Where, where does it go? It's a good question. I think we're not really fully set in stone as to what the next steps look like. We've we've always been really open and transparent that at some point we're going to want some sort of monetization event for mum and dad. So what that looks like, uh, we're not entirely sure. And the timing around that, again, we're not entirely sure. But we still see significant opportunities for growth, not only here in Australia, but also overseas. I think in Australia, our last strategy roadmap identified over 100 retail locations that we could open in Australia. And that doesn't include New Zealand, which is a two-hour flight, three-hour flight away from us, which we have no presence at all. So there, there is significant opportunity in the New Zealand market, as well as you know we've got distribution through the US and through Canada, and we know our product also resonates there. So we also see significant opportunities, particularly in the United States market as well. Yeah. Okay. And then what is it? So you, you just mentioned you want to see a monetization or a liquidity event of some sort for your parents. So as an outsider looking in, you run this $300 million plus $400 million revenue business. You own 80% of it. I feel like you're loaded. I feel like you've got plenty of money, but you're talking about you, you want a monetization event. So if you're on the outside looking in, it seems like like these guys have already made it. Is that not what it's like internally? Are you still like living hand to mouth? No, 
I think a lot of founders have this where every dollar that the founders have is tied up in the business. So that's us. You know, we have, I think right now we've got $91 million worth of stock. So we don't have cash. We own a lot of shoes. Hell, we have a lot of shoes, but you can only wear so many. <laughs> you, you, you can't pay for, for houses and cars and shoes, I guess, right? No, you definitely. I don't think any landlord or bank will, would accept shoes as payments. So, and we, yeah, so I think it all looks fantastic and rosy from the outside. And essentially, we're, we're fine. We're completely fine. But we would like at some point for, you know, and, and what that looks like, I'm not sure. You know, we, we're still passionate about the business. I'm young enough that I don't, that I've got plenty of years of working left in me, as does my eldest brother, Jay. My middle brother's already left the business, so he's, he's doing his own thing now. But we've got, you know, plenty of petrol in the tank and plenty of time. Whereas my mom, you know, she's 60, oof, 67 this year, 66 this year. You know, so at some point... We'll, we'll bleep like that out of the podcast. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to say a lady's age. Please, yeah, leave that out. <laughs> but at some point, we want her to be able to do what she wants to do, right? And right now, she's, you know, still working in the business and, and still grinding. But it, at some point, we want to say, okay... Go and do what you want to do. If you want to go to Europe, do that. If you want to open a pub, do that. If you want to spend more time with your grandkids, do that. But whatever you want to do, just just do it. Yeah, she'll open a pub and it'll become the biggest pub group in, in Australia. <laughs> and then, so from an operating standpoint, you guys started... like If we rewind back to the beginning of the story, you were living in a shack and you were you know basically just a, a poor kid. And now you're running this, this huge company. Do you still have the mentality of that poor kid? Like, are you still thinking about every dollar or have, has that changed over time? It's definitely changed. It's not the same as it was, but we're still very cognizant that things can change and you need to be prepared for that. The pandemic was a, a great reminder for that, for everybody, that absolutely it changed. It's not the same. We're not, we're not scraping for every dollar, but we're definitely always have the mindset that you need to be prepared and you've got to manage the business well so that when the time comes where things do get tough, you're ready for it. And I think right now we're, we're kind of leaning into that period for our business. We're kind of the glooming economic outlook isn't great. We've had in Australia 10 consecutive interest rate rises We've got runaway inflation. We've got really difficult macro challenges. So we're prepared that the business is, is going to face some turbulence. And we've always ran the business to a point where we need to manage everything really well because you've got to have safe gaps. You've got to have, I guess, opportunities within the business so that you need to be able to pull levers when and if the time comes. Yeah, I was chatting with a, a buddy of mine that has a, a fairly sizable real estate company and, and also came from very humble beginnings. And the way he describes it, which I think is perfect, is you still have the same feelings, the same kind of anxiety and thoughts around money. The amounts just get much bigger because the stakes get higher. So I used to worry about 20 bucks. I don't worry about 20 bucks. I worry about 2 million bucks. I worry about 20 million bucks because I have, I have a lot more mouths to feed and the stakes are higher. But am I worried about how I'm going to put food on the table? No, I'm not worried about that. But the problems, the potential problems are much bigger. Correct. And we care for our people, right? So ultimately, we, the decisions that we make have an impact on them. So we have to be responsible for the business because of the mouths that we are feeding. You know, I think at the latest count, I think there's, we've got 2,400 staff-ish 
and we're responsible for them and they've all got families and and mouths to feed and families to feed and mortgages to pay and all that sort of stuff so we have to be respectful and responsible in the way that we manage the business for them as much as it is for us well bill this is an amazing story it was so cool to talk to you and to learn about it. And the last thing I'll say is I have friends in Australia who I mentioned, I'm talking to Bill Monroe and, and Monroe uh, Footwear. And when I mentioned Monroe, no one knew what the heck I was talking about. But as soon as I mentioned your brands, they're like, oh, of course I know them. So <laughs> it's funny how you've managed to maintain this low profile while your brands are everywhere. Yeah, that, that's certainly our intention. We, uh, we don't want to be in bright shiny lights that that's not us let uh we let our our shoe brands and our retail brands do the talking and and hopefully you know end customers wear and love our product and that's that's what gives us joy we certainly don't need the accolades personally yeah awesome well thanks again for joining this was great i know people are going to love it and uh go out and buy some shoes everyone good on you buddy thanks thanks for your time Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a rating or a review on Apple and Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. 